Welcome to True House Stories. Of course, I'm Lenny Fontana. And we've taken a break in between some of the shows for certain reasons. I've been focusing on other work and doing records and stuff, but as well, been happy to bring together certain people that I like to see come and share their story, especially with the amount of history that they carry. Okay? So when I mean history, a lot of it's on the job. So you start your job, like anywhere that you go and work for any company, and you make your friends, and you start to make stories come together from those friendships. But more so, the reason why we're going to talk about this gentleman in a second, you know, me as a record producer, work with this gentleman many times in different things and, you know, along the years. And you always wonder what happens from when you hear a record made to where it gets to, say, commercial success on the radio, right? Or these days, Spotify, the end game. A lot of you may not understand the in-between part, the bridge part of how a record goes from inception to where it gets delivered to the end. And this is where we, for example, like myself, I would sign a record to a record label. It could be any of the labels. It could have been Strictly Rhythm or Warners or any labels. And they take the record from you. And what's the process that we go through to see a record become commercially viable through a club scene, you know, what's the ground roots to making that happen, right? So, of course, we go to these wonderful people that know how to pick certain records or know how to drive a record to get it to that step of making it become commercially viable through the DJs, through the, the their networks, of different ways of promoting. So now we're going to use the word promotion. And this is the important part. Without these type of players in the game, you would probably never have known the records that became very famous or some of the artists. And that's why I have to give Bobby Shaw his due right as one of the best in the game and longevity in the game and still doing it today you know when you start back in 1977 okay from a nightclub working as a bartender and working your way up to the mail room and pushing you know those those mail outs and and eventually getting a, a job at tk disco and then moving on from tk and then getting a corporate job at RFC and then Warners and MCA and Sire and the list goes on and on and on. And all the artists you work with, you got to be doing something really right. So without no further ado, I'd like to welcome to this show one of the best, if not the best in our game, Bobby Shaw. For yeah. God's sake, Bobby Shaw Promotions. We love Bobby Shaw. And as Bobby Promo on Twitch, as you all know him today, but we know him as Bobby Shaw. We sure do, don't we? But the funny thing was, <clears throat> you know, I, I was out at, um, I went to see Francois play a couple of weeks ago in Brooklyn. And two people came up to me and, oh my God, you're Bobby Promo. I'm like, whatever happened to Bobby Shaw, the 45-year promoter? It's like it exist. went down the tubes. Like who is 
Bobby. They don't even know my name. It's like, oh my God, it's Bobby Promo. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and is there something to be said? Is it a curse or is it a blessing? I think it's a blessing. Good. So that's how I see it, because you've gotten another career out of the whole thing. It's like a, um, it's like a renaissance in a way. You know, I, I was, I went to see, um, uh, what's his face? I went to a garage party in Lincoln, Lincoln Center, and I was in the elevator. I was going to the bathroom. It was in a parking lot downstairs, and um, I went down to. The, I was going in the bathroom, and there were these four women in the elevator, and the one of the women said to me, "I know you. I know you." You're, you're on that Twitch thing, right? I said, you, you're friends with Louis Vega. He raised into you. I said, no, he doesn't raid into me, Louis Vega. They, they said, wait a minute, Jelly Bean raid. I said, yeah, you got it right. I love your show. I'm like, oh, my God, this is, like, so crazy. Someone, like, out of nowhere. It's like, it was kind of freaky. You know, it's kind of freaky out for me because I've always been in the background. So, you know, something like this has just been, like, it's been just something so different, and I can't tell you how much I love it. Yeah, I could tell because you, you know, people have tuned into Bobby Promo's show. You know, every record, pretty much every record he pulls out, there's a story that goes with it, a personal story, which makes it even that more important to listen to what he's doing. You know, he's he's, he's handpicking the music, and you'll see him write about this. He'll say, you know, I'm spending hours to put the show together for Saturday night, so I got to figure out where I'm going with the show. And then as like all DJs do to pull records out. Oh my God. I remember where I was with this one or who I worked with, with this record. Right. Bobby pretty much. No doubt. Well, you know, even before I was in the music business, I mean, I was buying records from day one, you, you know, double exposure, the very first commercial 12 inch 10%. I bought it, you know, when it came out. And uh, I never stopped buying records, even if I wasn't a DJ. I mean, it was, it was always going record shopping every week and ever since I got in the business. But I was going record shopping with my mother. Even when I, before I was 10 years old, we would, we would watch American Bandstand and then go buy records, my mother and I. So I've been buying records for a long time. I miss the record stores. I miss, the, I miss the camaraderie of seeing all the DJs together. Um, I don't miss the like, wow, we have one copy. Who's going to get it? That's <laughs> like, it yeah. like, like I was very fortunate that, that uh, there was one store in particular, Rebel Rebel, which closed, unfortunately. But the guy used to let me come in an hour before they opened. Good luck. He knew I was spending money and he knew I was in the business and he was a nice guy. And there were two people in there, Craig Coleman and I, Craig Coleman, the president of Atlantic Records. The two of us were privy to be in there an hour early uh, to go through the new records, which was such a benefit for me. Yeah, of course. And I know you were well-trusted from all the DJs around the New York City area that were at the hottest clubs, and they would see you coming in. They knew you had fire under your, in, under your basically. Well, most of the time, I would like to, when I was promoting for the major labels, uh, I would like to have the DJ generally come to my office and hear the music that I was going to be, because I would go around from one person, one DJ to the next. I would take an acetate and go to like five different clubs a night, and I'd have to. It was just a horrible thing that I'd have to take the record back from. Oh, me. I couldn't leave it. Oh, it's so horrible. 
It's so horrible as a DJ. After now, this record's super hot. I can't have it. Well, because it wasn't out yet. So I was really basically testing the ground and creating a vibe for it. Word of mouth. Now, you know, you go to the internet, you know, word of mouth, it's not the same anymore. You know, it was just, uh, you know, you now, like, it's just so different now. But then, you know, you created a buzz. You know, when the record came out, everybody knew about it already. Now it's like, you know, record comes out, everybody has it, boom, like that. Yeah, I know. There's no, there's no setup time. Like you would say, no, that not alone. really. Or as well, a lot of us would do is as producers and DJs would test records to see how the feeling came from the dance floor. You knew you had something. Like right? someone like you can create a buzz because you can do a mix on a record and have it just for yourself and play it on your show and like build it up till it comes out. So right. You're capable. You're still capable of doing that. Uh, in some respects, I am on my Twitch show because sometimes there are things I play that aren't out yet. Right. But you are more than capable because you're a true musician. Thanks. Thank you. Bobby, let's get to that first question. I ask everyone the same way. The show's known for that. How does music find the young Bobby? And of course, you'll take us. No one paints a story better. Well, what do you mean, how does music find me? Uh, well, how did you find the music? Well, like I said, I used to watch American Bandstand with my mom. And we used to go record shopping. And uh, basically, I mean, I, I went to college. There was Cabbage's Records. I went to the University of Buffalo. I would go to the record store, Cabbage's Records. I went to a bar. I used to go to this bar called the Bocce Room in Buffalo. And of course, any club that I would go to, I'd have to make friends with the DJ. And I wasn't in the business, but because I was such good friends with the DJ that the club, when going to school in Buffalo, I would come home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, Passover, Jewish New Year. The club would actually give me a stipend of money to buy records in New York for them, even though I wasn't the DJ. So I mean, it's just always been a love for music. And when I came back... Um, so from college, when I came back from college, I used to frequent a bar a lot. And one day the manager of the club came over to me and said, look, you're here so much. And it was Tony Smith was the DJ and I didn't know him from Adam. And uh, the manager of the club, this guy named Kevin O'Connell, there he is, Tony Smith, the beloved Tony Smith, uh, passed away last year, unfortunately. Hello, Patty Fericelli. Hello, Josh. Hello, Otho. Hi, Ben. Hi, Red. Hi, Olivia. Um, so Tony, the guy in the middle was Charlie Lamani. He was a fellow bartender. Uh, lived on Hillside Avenue in Queens. And um, wow, you remember that, huh? Hillside Avenue. I did. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I used to stay there every once in a while. He was a good buddy of mine. Joe Ventura, welcome in. Hello, Reggae Patty. Good afternoon. Um, nice to see everybody here. So, um, so when I when so this guy Kevin O'Connell came over to me one day and said, uh, "You're here so much. How would you like to work here?" So, yeah, sure, why not? I was working at Saks Fifth Avenue at the time, and um, that's what happened. I got a job there, and um, I was a busboy. I would wear like no shirt and these little skimpy shorts, and I would oh, walk yes. around with a tray, drinks, drink. You know, I was twenty, what, twenty one years old, drinks, 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 and twenty two. 22 and 
they made me a bartender and I got to know a lot of people in the business, but I've always been buying records. I love going to record stores. I miss it tremendously. So do I. Now, now I go to like A1 Records and Academy and Generation, and I look for old 12 inches that I don't have. And sometimes albums, but rarely do I buy like, I, I, like there's a store on, uh, I just know the address, 220 East 10th Street. And they want like $19 for a new 12 inch of, of a new song. Like, it's really a lot of money. It's crazy. When you it's, used to think we were paying, at the end of it, maybe six dollars a twelve inch, five four ninety nine five for domestic six ninety nine. I mean, I could pull out a twelve inch from my shelf and show you the price. Yeah, I mean, I'm <laughs> just know? trying to remember the last when it stopped, and then they now people yeah, are think, back, back to reprint, you know, pressing again. Now it's like the Nietzsche thing. It's a very Nietzsche. Um, it's not like it'll ever be. For example, I know. Well, I don't want to jump ahead. So I want you to keep going with the story because, but anyway, back in the day, someone like Bobby would have 5,000 pieces of vinyl to promote as a promotion tool. You're lucky you can even do that to move that amount now. Well, what I, what I would do is um, I had a pickup day when I was at Warner Brothers and MCA and I would have envelopes. Friday was the pickup day. And I would have envelopes. I would address the DJs and then leave it out there, out front. Some of them I saw. I couldn't see everybody. But, um, yeah, I mean, I got a pretty a lot of records to promote as far as volume goes. You know, there was a box of, let's say, 200 in my office of almost every release. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Nowadays, they do 300, 400 pieces sellable around the world where that was just a box of... Well, even with the record pools, you were sending record pool records out as a hundred oh, yeah. per record pool, right? So then think about how many free goods they Thousands. were giving. Thousands. Right. There, so, were so many, there were so many record pools at one time. And uh, look, it, uh, I'm not going to say the internet killed things, but it it hurt sure in, it. Way. It in sure a certain way. It helped and it hurt. Yeah, it helped quickly end it in a lot of ways. So on the story of you, you're starting out at Barefoot Boy with Tony Smith and you're doing the drinks and stuff. How does this transcend to you getting into a job at a label? And which label? Um, I was 24 years old. I didn't want to be a bartender my entire life. It wasn't my cup of tea. The money was great. But it, it just wasn't what I wanted. And I had met some people, actually a lot of people. I mean, let, let me retract here. So Fridays was the pickup day for DJs to go around to get records. Now, I would go into the booth as much as possible, especially when a record person came to see Tony. And the record company people who were bringing records, there were a bunch of record promoters at that time. And I kind of became their choice to, bar I became a bartender. I got elevated. I didn't have to uh, wear no shirt anymore. Um, I got elevated to a bartender. So these record company people started becoming my customers. And, you know, I would give them drinks on the house and make sure they were covered. And I knew who all the record reps were as a bartender as opposed to being a DJ. And uh, it's, I started going around with Tony on Friday and getting free promos, even though I wasn't a DJ. 
you know, they would always welcome Tony Smith into the room. He didn't have to wait outside. And I went with him and got, and because I would take care of them as a bartender, you know, one hand washed the other. I got a lot of promos that people would dive to have now. Yeah. Even though I wasn't a DJ. Right. So, because you were there, they knew you, they, they were hanging out with you at I the bar. I treated them well as a bartender. Free drinks, you know. I mean, I think I was allowed 10 free drinks a night, if I'm not mistaken. So, did you 19- follow directions or did you give out more than 10 a night? Oh, did I you didn't follow? Want to that job. Let me tell you, the money was really good. I and bet. I was living, I was still living at my parents at the time um, in Queens. So, I went around. Uh, there were two people I went for jobs for. I went to Audrey Joseph at Arista. She might have been Ariola Arista. And I went to Ray Caviano, and Ray Caviano gave me a job in the mailroom. Uh, 35-hour week, TK Records. Uh, I was bringing home $84.30 a week. It was a $105 paycheck. And um, it was the greatest thing because I got to know every important DJ's name in the country because I was sealing envelopes and you know, literally ripping off name tags and you know sealing the envelope, putting the TK sticker on the top. The postage, I had a postage machine there, and uh, I got to know a lot of DJs. And one day, Ray just said, why don't you start calling some of these DJs? Uh, so I started calling some DJs, and then um, he eventually got a job at Warner Brothers, and a couple of months into his gig, he called me up and said, um, I'm not happy. They gave him a promotion guy, and the guy's name was Mark Murphy. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. Um, and he said, I'm not happy with him. I'm going to... I'm getting a staff together here. Would you want to come over and work for me? And I had got a big raise at TK by then. I was getting $150 a week and Ray gave me $300 a week. I doubled my salary in 19, uh, 1979. And I went to work at Warner brothers as uh, we did the RFC records and we promoted the Warner brother records. And uh, it was a ball. I mean, we had such amazing music. It was, it was incredible. You had Warner Brothers Records was the kingpin. Yeah. I just have a quick question about the TK uh, thing. Sure. Now, T- TK Records has the main office in Hialeah, Florida. Am I right at 495 that time? 495 Southeast 10th Court. <laughs> so how did that operate with New York having a, an office? What was going, how did that play out? Was that a satellite office or was it? It was a satellite office. It was the only satellite office they had. Um, Henry Stone was the owner of the label. He would come up quite often and um, really nice guy. And um, that's basically how it ran. But, you know, they trusted Ray. Ray was a great promotion man. He knew what he was doing. No, I believe that. Oh, no, there's no doubt doubt on that. Um, But. I remember hearing the Henry Stone story that he had a lot of the, the, the Southern radio people in his pocket that he was able to break records easier because he had from his, I guess from the fifties and sixties, somehow he was able to work records like KC and the sunshine band. All these records were Jimmy Bohorn were becoming massive hits. Well, <laughs> I don't, I don't really know that much. About oh, that. You know, I'm just, business, but, uh, you know, where on the street is generally true most of the time. Look, let's face it, Anita Ward, ring my bell. Who the fuck was Anita Ward? But part of my language. <laughs> but she, she became massive. Yeah, that's my point. See what I'm saying? Like, uh, again, remember what I said to you all children? Yeah, they were great records. No, they were great, but... I mean, you had to spend 
to get play. So here's the right. So here's the thing now. Did you, as a record promoter at that time, TK or even before Warner's or, or going towards, did you have the power to say to someone like Ray and Henry, you know, that record just doesn't have it? Or did you well, just- I really wasn't the promoter then because I was the mailroom boy. That's so true. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. But um, when I worked at Warner's and, and Ray was, you know, they let Ray, Ray was um, kind of relieved on his, of his job. And they kept me on and I worked with somebody who I got along pretty well with, but there were times records just didn't happen. And I really wasn't crazy. He always blamed me. It was my fault. The records didn't happen. There were some issues I had with the guy okay. overall and as a whole thing, the Warner brothers, five years of Warner's were just an amazing part of my life. Well, let's also let's, let's people see this through your eyes. You get the job at, RFC Warner slash Warner, correct? Mm-hmm. What's the office and who's at that office at the time with you? Um, let's see. To my right was Ray Campiano. Two over was Vincelletti, the A&R guy. Um, Bobby Siegel was Ray Campiano's assistant. We had two secretaries, Letitia and Mary Ann Claypatch. To my left was Larry Patterson. Yep. Um, we had Joey Carvello working in the Boston office. We had Jim Strait working in Chicago. I can't believe I remember all these names. It's amazing. And I love it. I yesterday. And we had um, Craig Costich working on the West Coast. Craig Costich was the uh, L.A. rep, and, and basically we were an L.A.-based company. So now take us through the pecking order of how a record gets into them, signed, and gets... Well, Vincelletti was the promo, was the A&R guy. Like, I'm pretty sure he brought change in. Okay. I don't, I don't know if they went... Yeah, you know, I had to say, I really don't recall if they went right to Ray or went through Vincelletti. But Vince was a former writer for Record World. Uh, yes. He wrote the, the column Disco File in Record World. He actually had, has a book out with all these different charts and DJs mm-hmm. and um, you know, they called the shots. Those two, I was just the guy promoting the records. I don't really recall having that much input. Um, I did and I didn't. What did that mean? You know, again, people have to understand that title promoter, you know, they signed the records. Now what happens? Um, well being okay. Now, now, there are two different parts. We're going to talk about the RFC part. We're going to talk about the Warner Brothers parts. They're two different entities. The RFC part, Ray always liked to be the ringleader. So even though I was the promotion guy, there were many times where we would go out and you know, we would go out together as opposed to me going out handling the records. We, we were a pretty good team. It was so strange. I lived in a studio apartment. And I was paying $325 a month uh, for rent. And yet on a, on a Saturday night, a stretch limousine was coming to pick me up to go out clubbing. The door man would look at me like, what the fuck is going on here? What's going on? I, this you know, Ray, was very, Ray was very extravagant, and he knew how to spend Warner Brothers money. And in those days, uh, money was a little bit more uh, probably expendable to the record labels. Uh it's different now, as a, as everything is. 
but he led, he led a very grand lifestyle. And we would go from club to club in a stretch limo, and the limo would just stand there and wait for us. I was a young kid in my 20s, and I was being catered in a limousine to a club. Was, I look back at it now, I don't think it had the same impact now as it did back then. I know it doesn't have the same impact now as it did back then. But yeah, but it's crazy. It was this guy who was paying like hardly any rent, and uh, you know, I was living in like a small little studio apartment, getting picked up in a in a stretch limousine. In a Lincoln Continental stretch. <laughs> but when Ray left, it became a whole different ballgame because they let go of the entire staff except for Craig and I. So I started traveling on their money and going around to different cities and seeing different DJs and. Kind of nurturing my career, and you know, that's, I was, that's you know I had the money and the funds to go any place I wanted to go, and Craig was not the type that would go on the road to see G DJs. He was you know very happy in the LA office. He was fun to work with. We had our issues, but basically we got along pretty well. That's incredible. But I will say, go ahead. Most, of the, most of the records broke out of New York City, and why? Well, I can tell you for a fact, 33% of the 12 inches that we sold were sold out of New York City. Why? Yes. I think a great reason was Frankie Crocker. If you want to show, I think I sent you. Yeah, I'm looking for, I'm going to. So Frankie Crocker was a, was the music director. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a whole clicky thing here. Frankie, I did show up, Patty. You are, I love going out. I still love going out. I used to go out like back in those days, first of all, clubs were seven days a week. Nice. It wasn't like Friday night, Saturday night, bottle service, see you later. You know, it was seven days a week. There was no internet. There was no dance radio. It was so different back then. So anyhow, back. so part of the uh, reason for the success of the records in New York I was close with Larry LeVan. I'll go to Larry's picture. Go he broke a lot of records for me. Okay. Now, Frankie Crocker was the music, was the program director, WBLS. And he was on four to eight, Monday to Friday. Now, Larry, Larry, Frankie used to come to the garage and stand over Larry's booth and stand next to Larry and see what he was playing. There was one thing about Frankie Crock. WBLS was, quote, an R&B station. The record companies had their promo people. Pop promotion, R&B promotion, dance promotion. I was the dance guy. Mm -hmm. Now, Jackie Thomas was the Warner Brothers rhythm and blues rep. BLS was categorized as an R&B station, but Frankie Crocker music was colorless. So he would go to the garage and stand over Larry. Now, Larry had a major amount of trust in me. I would actually go to, when I would buy records, I would buy him records that he didn't have. You know, imports I would buy because one, I knew he would like them. And two, I wanted to dance them. <laughs> so I would bring him things that I had nothing to do with. And he had a major trust in me, and 
I would bring one record. He'd probably put it on without even listening. He had a, the trust was, the trust between each other was great. So Frankie was standing over him and Larry would play my records and Monday afternoon they would be on BLS. Now it caused a little bit of friction at Warner Brothers with me and the, the, the R&B person, but it was very short-lived, but he was playing craft work. He was playing Frankie Crocker. I'm talking about get taking the he would take the records from Larry, Kraftwerk, The Who, Tom Tom Club. These were records that were not being worked by Jackie Thomas, but they were going on BLS. They were great records. How the hell does that happen? Because you know what happens on their side. The records getting on BLS. We're not bringing it to BLS. Who's bringing it up there? You know they're saying. Well, that. she knew. Look, eventually. Jackie Thomas realized we're playing for the same team. And that's where she, egos come in. Right? To, I mean, if you show the picture of Prince and I, she's the person in the picture. And she came the to love. Body. She's Look, the one next to me. See? And at the beginning, you know, she had, you know, she was, I think it was a little bothersome. She was trying to get, you know, Al Jarreau, Randy Crawford played, and but he was playing craft work. Each neat son, she. <laughs> I didn't have to bring chicken up to him on a Friday afternoon. I was going to ask you: Did you have to bring up a manila, uh, a, a, a brown envelope with some something in there that made, made I did him? Not. No. Did you hear about that a lot from a lot of promoters? They had to, you know, sweeten up the pie a little bit. Well, I will tell you, and I could say this because he passed on. So if sure. he was still living, I wouldn't say this. But okay. we went to a assault. We went to a DMC. Um, judging contest together in London. We didn't go together, but we were both judges on a contest. And Frankie and I went out to dinner. He actually turned me on to Evian. I had never even heard of it. The next day we went shopping in the Soul to Soul store. He found this jacket that he loved. Get to the, Bobby, I left my wallet in my hotel room. You know, I paid for it. Shit, yeah, you paid. Warner Brothers let me expense it. So that's the only time he... Re I mean, I took him out for dinners with this guy, Juggy Gales. Never one-on-one -on -one in New York. It was always with a promoter named Juggy Gales, an independent, independent promoter. And I paid plenty, but uh, I never was one... I mean, for those who don't know, the R&B reps used to bring him fried chicken on Friday to the office for him to eat. I was never one that had to bring the chicken up. But I did buy him a beautiful soul-to-soul jacket. <laughs> the golden voice. Of but, you know, I never really paid to get records played and uh, never will. So, so the importance of Frankie playing the record for a national record to well, really go. Well, the guy had such a visibility and such a listening audience. It was the number one show in New York. And it was a buying audience. I mean, those records were so great. Who wouldn't want to buy them? You heard Genius of Love on the radio. Who wouldn't run out to buy that? Yeah. So really. a, lot of th a lot of things broke through our dance department at Warner Brothers. You know, they weren't getting it on the West Coast, but they were getting it on the East Coast. And um, then there was a program director named Mojo, uh, WJLB in Detroit. And he was another one. Uh, I didn't really know him, but he picked up on those kind of records. That was also a, quote, colorless radio station that was deemed an R&B station. 
Right. You know, and slowly but surely, other people picked up on it. You couldn't stop a record like Genius of Love. It was it was that well, big. Well, New York radio also ruled the roost. I mean, people looking what's going on. Well, well it also, it, it forced Barry Mayo at WRKS to play those kind of records, too. I mean, RKS was a straight-ahead R&B station, but those records became so big that he had they had to deal with them. So everyone paid attention. Had that big audience, it was such a crossover audience. It wasn't only black people listening to BLS. It was it was everybody. Yeah, everybody in New York. I mean, listened it was to that really show. the sound of New York. And so that um, Frankie Crocker and Larry Levan were so instrumental in helping me. You know, it, we we weren't thinking of those terms back then, but when I look back on it. Those two people were so instrumental. Big time. And Tony yeah. Smith. He taught sure. me a lot, too. Like, for example, see this picture, everybody? Take a look. That's John Brown, Larry, Bobby, Thelma Houston, and Judy Weinstein, who was at Florida Record in those days. That was what I was taking. I was taking Thelma Houston around on a promo tour. Those were the MCA days, the early MCA days. So that's, you see, I'm, I'm just Crazy showing that Two how people passed in that picture already. Yes. It's so sad. How Larry's booth, what was going was on Larry's booth. booth? It wasn't a booth. It was it was the congregation area of, of a hangout. Well, there were two parts of the booth. There was the part where Larry was. Then they had the coat room in the middle. And then there was like an area where his guests could stay. And they had a bowl of fruit or fruits out there for everybody to have. Free drinks, not liquor, just, you know, water, juices. And now it's a couch there that was really... Larry's mother used to stay in where the couch was. And um, that's where his guests stayed. Most of them did not hover over him. I hovered over him. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of the privileged ones. But uh, so, I, I used to... I moved from uh, 322 East 90th Street to 200 West 16th Street so I could walk to the Paradise Garage. I moved apartments so I could walk there. And it literally was a 15-minute walk to, from my apartment to the garage. I love the garage. Those were like the greatest years of my life. So now we're at Warner's. How long is the tenure and how long is it you stay with them until this ends, until you move to your next position? Um, 1984, I get a call from, from Gerald Busby or Richard Palmisi at MCA Records. And... Um, they wanted to create a dance department, and uh, they flew me out to L.A. Uh, but it's a strange okay. thing. So they flew me out to L.A. to hire me as the dance person. Okay, I was starting on March twelfth, nineteen eighty-four. On March 9th, this was all a setup. They got me for for cheap money. Let me tell you. Uh, I'll tell you, 47500 okay? 1984. So March 9th, 1984, the Friday before, they let go of their pop promotion person, a guy named Sammy Vargas. Boom, I start on Monday. Hey, you're going to be doing pop radio for us too. Like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't know nothing about these radio stations. Well, I, I mean, I knew what they played, but I didn't know anybody. And they literally threw me into the wolves. 
and gave me two jobs, which wound up being the greatest thing in the world for me. I got to meet a lot of new people at Pop Radio. I don't think you yeah, I became the Pop Radio person besides the dance. So they let me hire somebody. In the long run, it was like, this is crazy. I'm like, I have no minutes to breathe here. And they let me hire an assistant who they made me fire in the long run. But uh, I had an assistant working for me. And that was short-lived. And um, I was there 14 years at MCA Records. Okay. Fifth, so um, I got let go on April 23rd, 1998. And I was told to have everything out of my office by the next day. All right. But and and ironically, when as soon as I went independent, they literally hired me like a month and a half later. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about because that's later on. But let's talk about the MC era. You got, you got a lot of people you helped with their careers. Um, Madonna. I mean, there's so much. There's so many people. I mean, let's start from... Who's some of the first that you worked with there to start making things, uh, get them promoted and get them to how we know them now, you know, the superstars they are? Well, I, I mean, it's crazy that I was doing two jobs. So I was actually, you know, besides doing the dance stuff, I, I was taking, I, mean, I think I sent you this picture. I took like meatloaf to the Yankee game to sing the national anthem. Of all people, I'm taking meatloaf. Let me show you uh, this. He's got meatloaf there. I mean, that was crazy that I was, you know, here I was. I don't, I don't even know Meatloaf's records until I worked at MCA. But uh, you did. <laughs> you but did. Was I instrumental in his career? Not really, but it was just like such a rush. I, I was taking this. I mean, I went, I went underneath the tunnel at Yankee Stadium. You know, I couldn't go near that area, but I was with Meatloaf, so I was able to go there and. The, you know, to walk onto the field and be there, like on the side there when Meatloaf is singing the national anthem, like this is crazy. This is going on. Like this is nuts. But hey, we was it was. But there was just so many Bronski beat, uh, New Edition. Uh, just so many Dan Hardman, uh, Jody Wadley, and there's a ton. Jody Wadley, one of the biggest disappointments though in in my career. In that, um, tell us about that. Well, she got Dance Artist of the Year for Billboard. We broke her. There's no doubt about it. We broke her through the clubs, even though she had been a member of Shalimar. Most people didn't know who Jody Watley was. And we, right. got, we got her a bunch of number one dance records on Billboard. And she was Dance Artist of the Year. And she won the Grammy for Best New Artist. And she gets up there and thanks everybody and their mother from MCA except for the dance guy and I was devastated <laughs> I'm watching this on TV and she's thanking everybody in MCA from the garbage man to this and that and you know me see what happens but, but Jody Wiley was really a very sweet person very sweet person that's what we say unsung heroes you know because you're quietly behind the scenes it's okay but so much in front of the scene to get things to be played, heard, get the placement right for that person. People don't realize that, how important that is. And she's such a nice woman. She just, just I guess she forgot. She didn't mention anybody in the New York office, so I shouldn't be that slighted. But we did get her Dance Artist of the Year, so it was what it was. Now, let's put it this way. I guess she didn't want me. 
supposed to be a joke. Don't you want me? It went past you. Goodbye. <laughs> Don't you want me, baby? Such a great racket. Don't you want me to love you? All do kiss. Yeah, she was discussed. Yes, Joe, I'm sorry. I didn't see that. Yeah, she was a soul trained dancer. Her and Jeffrey Daniels and Howard Hewitt, which was Shalimar. I'm sorry. I really wasn't looking at the chat. Oh, let me see. Is anybody asking what question? That's all right. You're telling us information that people are learning. See how we would we would never really known that, but you're watching the you know the Grammys and you're waiting to be mentioned and you're like, well, I, first of all, no, first of all, I didn't know that she was going to win. Of course, I mean I couldn't know, but, but when she when won, she won it was like oh, and she started thanking everybody like, oh well, I'll cry tomorrow. But she's a very sweet girl. That's tough. It's tough. No, of course. You know what? They're good people, and they and they they treated you with respect and care. But nobody remembers when they hit that number. You're like, hey, I was there. I was helping you. Like I said, you're behind the scenes, keeping it going, and the general public doesn't realize that. Really, the people in our industry know what how important your work is. And what you do, but unless it's shown and explained, it gets lost in translation, you know? Right. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, even from the angle of today or Twitch, like <clears throat> the only ones that knew me were the DJs who knew me. Like, nobody knew who I was on Twitch because um, I'm in the back. Like, like when I stream, I feel like I feel like I'm almost making new inroads because I never was known as somebody who plays record, even though I played in New York for a couple of years. I was never really known as somebody who plays records. So this is like a whole new life for me. It's new career. It is. It's incredible. Like people are getting to know me as a, as an entertainer playing music too, besides being in the background. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show, I want to show a picture of how important he, you know, we talk Hold about. Hold on a second. Let me just add, tell Mix Matt, Matt, I, I really don't recall. What was but, the first record went to one. Oh, Okay, so let me show a picture. Let's start with let's start with some the luminaries are no longer with us. Sure. What happened with certain things? You all know how he said he visited DJs, right? So he visited this man, and he got a special phone call from him when he was when he was promoting a record. We're gonna let him tell you the story. David Mancuso from, from which okay, actually was anniversary yesterday, Valentine's Day, fifty three years from the first. Uh, Love party. Well, David um, was another one who had a lot of trust in me. He owned his own club in 99 Prince Street. It was where he lived, and he also entertained on Saturday nights. Um, oh God, I should have sent you my Loft membership card. I should have sent you the picture. But um, the Loft membership card was a picture of the Little Rascals, and on the other side was your name. So David would stay open 2, 3 in the afternoon on a Sunday. And I would go there sometimes with Larry, sometimes with David DePino, sometimes alone. But um, I was a pretty good loft attendee. Mm -hmm. uh, those days, I would just go from the garage to the loft and stay up on Sundays. And it's a little different. I wasn't sending out emails on Sunday night. Those days hadn't, hadn't arrived yet. What so, emails? Uh, it was those. It wasn't even a beeper yet. Email, no, it was a cell phone. Everybody, no cell phone. No beeper. No you cameras. Know. No phones with cameras. Zero. 
Zero. Zero. So I was involved with a record called White Horse. Uh, Seymour Stein was, uh, this is when I worked at Warner. Seymour Stein was the president of Sire Records. And he's another one. Him and I got along. Sire Records was distributed through Warner's. I was so privileged to work, um, promote music from Sire. And Seymour Stein and I got along. I mean, we still do. Um, got along great. And one day he said to me, I have this album. Can you please listen to it? It was an album by a group called Laidback. And there was a single out in Europe already called Sunshine Reggae. And I listened to the album and I said, Seymour, there's a track here called White Horse. That could be major, major, major if you had the right mix. Okay. And he said, well, can you do it? And uh, I had met John Patoka, an engineer. I believe I met him through Jellybean, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I said, sure. So he let me go into the studio with John Patoka, an amazing, amazing engineer. And we, those were days when you spliced the tapes and he was, I was telling John, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this. And uh, we had tapes all over the wall, and he put them together the way I wanted it. Anyway, the record came out, and it was a pretty big record. Oh, smash. What are you talking And one day, David Mancuso, who never called me, on a Friday called me and said, are you coming down to the club on Sunday? Or can you come to the club on Sunday? Sure. Can you make it a certain time? Okay. So I get to the club. And he literally had a real white horse sitting at the front of the club for me. In my, my honor, I guess. I don't know what you would call it. But David was... Um, Eccentric like that. Yeah. And there was another record I told you before when we were discussing some things. Um, I promoted this record by this group called The Girls Can't Help It, called Baby Doll. And that was another record that David just loved. And one day I come to the club. And sure enough, he has this doll for me. This I don't even know where it is. This gorgeous doll that he brought for me. Like, what am I going to do with a doll? But nonetheless, it was a beautiful thing he bought for me. So David, um, yeah, David and I, we bonded very. I don't know how many people bonded with him on music. Like, um, not many. He trusted, he trusted me. Not many. He was another one. I was allowed to stand by him. Okay. I was never like looking over his shoulder, but I was by him. Never a pain in the ass. I always learned never to be a pain in the ass to any DJ. Never talk to any DJ unless they talk to you. And maybe now it's a little different, but um, I, would keep, I would keep quiet and just like watch and observe. Sponge, basically, right? And, sponge. And, well, I wouldn't say I was a sponge. I would say more like um, a piece of the furniture, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> really quiet. Jesus Christ, like you're just there. Oh, my God. So you mentioned, of course, Seymour Stein's sire, okay? So everyone he's seen over the years, you've been on talk shows. I should have sent you a picture of the two of us. That would have been Stupid nice. Me. It's okay. Stupid me. It's all right. You do. He's got great pictures, by the way. So we was able to get some really good photos when we had time to sit and have breakfast together this past Sunday. So we're going to talk about the Sire moment. So, of course, this artist that everybody knows today is going to do her 40th anniversary tour. 
this gentleman, Bobby, was in the beginning part of the 40th anniversary, in the beginning of the start, and helped along the way. So, of course, the two there, you mentioned Jelly Bean before, and we're going to talk about Madonna. You know, how can we not mention not Madonna, because that's a big part of Bobby's life in the music business, too. You know, his success with Madonna. So go ahead, share this with us, Bobby. Well, first of all, let me answer Mix Matt's question. Um, hello, Matt. Uh, I've been friends with Chef Patty Bowen for about 40 years and actually just uh, was chatting with him the other day. I'm trying to get Chef to come to Twitch. He's kind of like out of the music business and I, he doesn't even have a Twitch account. And I'm like, Chef, sure, come, Chef. Still come. There he is. There's Chef right there. Hosh, this was taken uh, at his birthday party a couple of years ago. That's Hosh Gorilli on Chef's to the far left. That's Chef, Leslie Doyle, myself. And a girl named Duffy Macri, a friend of Shep's, mm -hmm. who actually lives in Shep's apartment on 69th Street. Okay. Mm -hmm. He kept the apartment. He did keep the apartment then. He's kept the apartment. Yeah, he has an apartment on 69th Street. Okay, so so we're back to this era now. Jelly Bean, the Fun House, Madonna. Enlighten yeah. us your story. Oh, I didn't know they sold that apartment, Hosh. I thought he kept it. Okay. Oh, thank you, Hosh Gorelli, for the for the. Hosh Gorelli, welcome in. Welcome in, Hosh. Thank you very much, Hosh. Well, let's do a couple of quick hellos. Anastasia Beaverhausen, Kathy Bates. Hello, nice to see you. Timothy hello, Callahan, uh, Pyro Lion. I know is in school. Everybody Reggae Patty, knows. hello. Rob the Boom, the Boomer is in the house. Patty Fericelli. I don't know who the Lobster Live is. JD Baby, hello. They're gorgeous. Reggae Patty, I said. Red One, hello. Patty Fericelli, Timothy, we said. Ortho Ben Flack is in the house. Uh, Moni Smiles, hello there. Uh, Gil Knight, I don't know. Moni Smiles, hello. Mark Tiny, I love you. Joe Ventura, hello there. Joe Big Speaker Music. John Homan from Pittsburgh, Metro Mix. San Francisco Butch Boy, the man and the only. The Josh, the Joshua, the Joshua, the Joshua Tree of San Francisco. Uh, Red One, I think I said you. Olivia, hello. Bushy, welcome in. Uh, let's see Thomas Blondet from DC. Welcome in. Hello there. Nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Oh, let's see if I miss anybody else here. Uh, John Homer, nice said Lenny, Lenny Fontana. Welcome in. Scrolling up here. Don't think I missed Mick Man. I said hello. Guy on one on Guy oh one nine five. Welcome in. Hello there. Welcome in from up from the New England area, I believe. Oh, DJ Takane is in the house. I didn't see you in here. Oh, okay. I'm scrolling up here. I don't want to waste your time, Lenny, but just, just want to say hello to some people here. Uh, Timothy Callahan, hello. Joe, Joe V. Uh, let's see. I think... Uh, I think you covered everybody. Andy Colombo, I don't know. Freckles. Hey, DJ Freckles. Welcome in. I spotted you. That was a bad joke. Spotted Freckles. Never Har, har, har. Yeah, yeah. Bobby, come on. Give right. us, we want to hear the dirt. Okay, so All Madonna right, Jelly, let's go. I want right. to hear it. All right, Mark Cameron. So, Digital Ecstasy. Hello there. GK All right, handles. You know, everybody, okay. this is what I'm going to say. Bobby's no longer thanking everyone for coming in. Thank you, everyone, for coming in. We all love you and watching the show. I want. I really want to hear Bobby tell the story. Okay. Because the same Twitch Friday night, Saturday night. This is this is historical. So okay. Bobby, go ahead. So okay. now we go once again. Mark Jelly Cain. Bean rocks Mark the Cain. house. Mark Cayman's good buddy of mine. 
May he rest Tuesday, in peace. Nancy Terrier, Saturday night, worked at Island Records. Michael Rosenblatt, A&R guy, Sire Records. Mark, Michael Rosenblatt, myself, and Mark were kind of like a trio. Um, we'd hang out at Danceteria. Mark was generally my stop before Larry. Uh, I would go to Danceteria, hang out in the booth with Mark. He had a very small booth, but we were able to smoke pot in there, and it was just fun. You could never do that now. You can't even smoke anywhere for smoking pot in the club. Well, go ahead. Uh, so, so um, and I actually took Mark to see Larry, introduced him. He had never met him, uh, but Mark was heavily influenced by Larry, as as a lot of us were. Um, the Madonna was a hanger out at Danceteria, and then I guess she confronted Mark, and they became more than just record com record friends. If you get the drift of things. And um, she cut a track called Everybody with him. And Mark, because we were such good friends with Michael Rosenblatt, too, from Sire, who I worked with, he brought the record up to Sire. Uh, Michael Rosenblatt brought it to Seymour, and Seymour signed it. And I was Madonna's promoter for Everybody. Uh, it was the first single we released. Um, if you notice on the jacket, there's no picture of her. It's just a, um, it's just an art, you know, an artist picture. I don't know who's I say it's Mike Cruz. Well, I guessed it. Mike Cruz never, never knows when I'm on. <laughs> Let me tell him to put you on, okay? Hold on. Yo, bro, put on Lenny Fontana on, um, on Facebook or on Twitch, okay? Lenny Fontana official. See you later. Sorry about that. So anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, so um, that's a promotion. Everybody, how he's this would be in his office the same way. Hang on one second, we pick this up, boom, and then come back to the conversation. That's how he used to be in his office too, like that. One second, well, Madonna actually a few times would sit in my office and watch me on the phone. Okay, Crazy. she wanted to learn everything. She was a smart cookie, let me tell you. Um, so. We started, you know, he took around everybody, started creating a buzz, the same thing with an acetate, took her around to clubs, and obviously the record became massive. It was a huge, huge club record, and which was followed up by um, Physical Attraction, and um, what was the second one? Not Burning Up, Physical Attraction, and uh, Lucky Star. And then, then we broke the album, and um, I was kind of like her right-hand person. I was taking her around and introducing her to DJs. We went on the road together. Uh, it was She had three dances, Bags, her brother. Uh, what was her name? Not Eleanor. It was another girl. It was three of us. So five of us would go on. Well, we went to Boston together. Uh, we, went, we didn't go to Boston. I take that back. We went to Miami together. And... Um, Literally, from the day one, I kind of held her hand and took her around to New York DJs, introduced her. Uh, funny story, uh, on Fridays, DJs would come to my office to pick up their records, but we had a select group that would come in at 6 o'clock at night. And we would... Friday was the pickup day, which I previously mentioned for all the record labels. So I would have a select group that would come in 
six o'clock at night and come to see me last. And we'd sit around. Well, Madonna did not sing Sidewalk Talk. That was actually Elisa Fiorello. Madonna did backups, just FYI. Um, but that was a Jelly Bean production, Sidewalk Talk, that was produced. That was uh, The artist was Elise Fiorello, not Madonna, but she did sing on it, correct? Yeah, in the background. And she also sang with the Breakfast Club. But anyhow, so anyhow, so we used to have a gathering of maybe 10 DJs who would come to my office on Fridays. And we'd listen to all, first of all, six o'clock Friday, everybody was out of the office at Warner Brothers. You know, it's Friday, six o'clock, nobody wanted to be there. So I would have like the whole floor to myself. So we would sit there and smoke pot and get high and nobody would say anything because there was nobody there. And we'd listen to all the records that everybody had brought from the other labels. And it was great because for me, I was getting an education on what everybody else was promoting. And I got to hear everybody else's records, the Sony records, the Chrysalis, the RCA, the Polydor. There would be somebody there with everybody had records to play. So we would sit there for a couple of hours. Well, one time she came there. And I was playing a record. Okay. She went and took the needle off the record. And I looked at her and I said, well, I, I, now I would say it differently, but I would have, I should have said, bitch, you don't do that. But you're right, bitch, what are you doing? Touching my shit. I said, Madonna, don't ever do that again. This is not your party. I'll never forget, forget Good that. Good for you. Good for you. Well, she, you know, she, nowadays, she'd probably slap me in the face, but uh, you know, she wanted to learn. She was sitting with some of the major DJs in New York and getting to see things. So it was a good who learning experience for her. Who were those DJs that would normally come around on Friday night? Would you would say? Danny Grivet, John Matarazzo, um, Danny Pucciarelli, I think, used to come. Kenny Carpenter, mm -hmm. um, James Richardson. Uh, God damn, I can't even remember. It was it was a select group, but it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, Larry was not one of them. He didn't come there, but um, we had a select group of DJs, and it was just a lot of fun. We would Ma did Mario Rios used to come? I'm trying to think if he was one of them. That was a long time ago. John Matarazzo, I remember him. George Rodriguez used to come every once in a while. I mean, it was it was a select group, but it was just a, it was just so much fun. Yeah, of course. Red yeah. One. Um, I used to have a listening set. I'm gonna just repeat this quickly for Red One. I used to have a listening party in my office. Madonna was there one time, and she went and took the needle off one of my records, and I said, "Don't you ever do that again. This is not your party." Yeah. But anyhow, so her and I. Um, on our tour, one time, we went to the Funhouse. And I introduced her to this DJ named Jellybean. And their history doesn't need to be told. They became an item. And uh, he worked on one of, you know, a bunch of her records. And there you go. But yes, I, um, I introduced the two of them. I'm, I'm, I'm the culprit. Shame on you. <laughs> I had some great experiences with her. And um, I mean, I'll, I'll just, ex uh, ex first of all, New York radio, Frankie Crocker broke the record. Right. Because he started playing it once Larry started playing it. He heard it at the garage and it was like, you know, full blitz after that. 
Everybody was really never a big national radio record. The Warners never really got behind it because there was no album to back it up. Holiday was really her first big radio record. And uh, you know, this, this is, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was great. It was just, it was great. Um, not that I'm going to toot my horn here, but I will a little bit. Uh, I am on the A&E biography about her. Yeah. They, they, took a, they took a picture of me and, on the A&E biography, they show me. It's like such an honor. Uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, they actually came to my office and, and interviewed me and put makeup on me, and they had this umbrella with lighting. And, I mean, to have me put makeup on, you got to be kidding me. But they did. And, I, and I'm, I'm in a lot of books about Madonna. I'm in Seymour Stein, really, and his biography really lauded me tremendously. And uh, let's face it, I took her around when nobody cared about her. And uh, look what she became. It's history. We actually did a show in Key West. We did uh, Casanova's in Miami, in Miami, into the Copa. And then the next day, we drove to Key West. And it was Madonna and I in one car and her dancers and her brother. They were all in another car. I don't know where they were. But anyhow, we were, we had, a, I was, you know, like I said, I was able to spend money back in those days, like there was no tomorrow. And um, we got a convertible and the two of us driving to Key West together and I'm smoking marijuana left and right. <laughs> and she, she and I were listening to the radio, singing songs together. And I, and I look back at it now, I just like, can't believe that actually happened. But we were like singing songs together, Madonna and I. It's a crazy thing. So anyhow, we did a show at the Copa that night and it was pouring rain. And, well, I don't know about that, Matt. I think Madonna would have done pretty well for herself. But I helped her. You're very funny, Red One. Okay, um, so anyhow, we did a show. It was pouring rain. Maybe, maybe 25 people were at the club that night. It's crazy. Yeah, there was nobody there. Nobody knew who she was. She would, you know, we were just breaking her. But it was, um, it was quite. See, right. see, see what we talk about, everybody? Promotions, and 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 working up the ladder. That's perseverance. But let's Stay face here. it. She, she started from the, excuse me, from the ground up. Well, I if remember there's, hearing, if there's ever an artist that started at the bottom, it was her. The tippy, the, the bottom but, of the barrel. But she wanted to know everything. I give her a lot of credit. Okay. You know, it's funny. Years, years, years later, a couple of years ago, I saw her perform at Barclays Center in uh, Brooklyn. And I saw Liz Rosenberg, who was her publicity person. And I said, Liz, is she going to see anybody after the show? I, you know, she don't see anybody after the show anymore. And I looked at her and I said, damn, Liz, I remember she would have talked to the garbage man if it meant helping her. <laughs> Not that way, but, you know, she, she, she wanted to learn. And she was very open to whatever it took. And I give her a lot of credit. Yeah, me you know, too. She wanted a, she wanted that career. Now, the, question she got is, it. the question is, was she, a, you know, people say she's not such a great singer. Is it more that she's a show person or is it more the stage side of her or is it just the way it just all packaged? 
she had great songs. She had a good voice. And she emitted sex. And people love sex. And sex sells, everyone. Sex sells. Still That's to this sure. day. Hell yeah. To this day. Yeah, great this songs. The songs are amazing. I mean, you yeah, well, look at this. Yeah, they still hold. They still hold today. I mean, is anybody is anybody playing American Pie, my Madonna, these days? I don't know. You tell me. No, not the. I don't think so. Not that <laughs> one. No. But again, here we go. Here's another big disco queen that he worked with, Donna Summer. Donna you know? Summer. Well, yeah, I didn't. Work, you know, it, when I was a club person before I was a record industry person, how much I loved Donna Summer. And then when I worked at Warner's, we distributed Geffen. And she was on Geffen. So I promoted The Wanderer, State of Independence. And I got to meet Donna Summer. And like, oh, my God, Donna Summer. I like, what a, what a freaking rush. Here I am meeting somebody who, like, I treasured as a dancer and as a music person. And Wow, I was meeting Donna Summer. How crazy was that? But. It was pretty amazing, and obviously when I left Warners, I was not involved with her again, but when I became an independent promoter, um, I got to work some of her records again on Epic, and then all of a sudden I became good friends with Bruce Daniel, her husband, and I was hired for a lot of her records, and I got to know her you know, relatively well, relatively well to the point that um, I could bring my family backstage to meet her. Oh. And she treated them like uh, they were promoting the record. She she was she was really really good. A good story about Donna Summer that I've told before, but I think it's um, kind of relevant. So I was at a show in Connecticut, uh, backstage with her husband, Bruce Cedeno. He was part of Brooklyn Dreams, and um, she was singing "Bad Girls." And I looked at him and I said, "Damn." Doesn't she get tired of singing this song? Mm. And he looked at me and he said, look at the way that people are screaming. Could you ever get tired of that? And I got it. I totally got it. You know? I mean, you have people screaming for those songs. Uh, it must be a rush to sing them every time. You know yeah, how many times you can sing it, but if they're going to scream, why not, right? Yeah, you might as well, right? You, this is your, that's her life. I mean, may she rest in peace. Yes. When she died, it was very sad, but um, they actually let me, um, I still remain friends with her husband to this day. Nice guy, Bruce Sedania, really nice. And she was, she was so kind, let me tell you. Such a nice woman. And what a voice, right? Oh, yeah. Now I'm going to take you from what we would call from a great, Great diva voice to a completely different voice and how you were hired to handle this project from Yoko Ono. Welcome well, on the ice. Okay, well, I worked it twice, actually. I worked the original when I was at Warner Brothers, and then I got hired as an independent when they did the remixes years later. So when I worked it the first time, uh, you know, I was just the promo guy and promoted it and it would 
it, you know, it was one of those strange records that just uh, took off. And again, I will give Larry Levan a lot of credit. He played that record to death. And when Larry played a record in New York and he had DJs hanging out in that booth, it spread like wildfire. And that was another record that Frankie Crocker played that the R&B person, you know, was scratching their head. He wasn't playing uh, Larry Graham. He was playing Yoko Ono. <laughs> so years later, Zoom Ahead, and I'm promoting one of her singles through, through Rob Stevens, her, uh, man her dance music manager, great guy. And um, Rob says, if this record goes to one on Billboard, she wants to have you over to her house. So that was the stipulation. Well, you know, I bu I always bust my ass anyway, but that one, like, I got to like, meet Yoko Ono? Holy shit. So I went, we got the record to one, and I got invited to Yoko's house in the Dakota. You had to go through two security people to get up there, get in an elevator. The elevator opens up. You're not in the hallway. You're in her apartment. And I... We, we said that this big table and she's serving coffee and tea. And before I went there, I did like a little bit of research and I knew she was into fracking, not in, you know, fracking what it was. And like, I had a whole discussion with her about fracking and like, this guy didn't come up here to talk about my music. He wants to talk about fracking. And I think that really impressed her that I didn't, wasn't there like, bugging her about music. I was talking to her about fracking and I was dying to see the apartment. And it was, we were like in this room by the elevator and she had a big TV screen and like, Oh my God, I want to see this apartment so badly, but well, I can't say that. Well, Rob Stevens says, uh, I'd love to, you know, would you, would you take a picture? I'm going to try to do it in the best way possible. Let's go to the other side of the apartment. Can you hear me? Let's go to the other side of the apartment. There's a room there that overlooks Central Park. I want you to see it, and we've got the best picture there. Like, okay, we're going through the apartment. Every room had a piano. Again, I'm going to try my best. John loved to have every a piano in every room. Like, oh, my God, this is crazy. So I saw the entire apartment. She had one room. I, I, I may get killed for saying these things, but she had one room where it was just her hats, her fedoras. Let's put it this way. Her room with her clothing was bigger than my room, my bedroom. Right. That's just that. Right. That one room. But uh, she, she obviously liked me. Look, I got her a number one record. Let's face it. That was a, one reason to like me. And uh, I think talking about something else other than music really impressed her. I had that. I had the same incident with, um, what's his name? Randy from America, from American Idol. Randy Jackson. Randy Jackson. I, I met him once. And I, I, like I said, I try to do research when I'm in it. And I, I knew he played with Jerry Garcia. And we sat down for lunch. So tell me, what was it like playing with Jerry Garcia? He looked at me like, what the fuck are you asking me? Are you <laughs> this is what you want to ask me? And I said, yeah. And I, you. Think, I think the he loved it. And his answer? Oh, come on. Anybody would play with Jerry Garcia. It's an honor. Yeah. I mean, to play with Jerry Garcia, my God. 
For all you guys the, that the know only, the, only, the only person I've ever been starstruck, I was standing, you know, I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. Um, I was, WNEWFM was having a week of uh, interviews at the Hard Rock Cafe when it was on 57th Street. And Lorraine Caruso, when the music director, invited me up there. And Jerry Garcia, this is before cell phones and pictures, and Jerry Garcia was up there by himself getting ready to do an interview, and I'm standing as close as we are on this screen. And I didn't know what to say to the guy. I couldn't say anything. I was tongue-tied. Like, oh, this is so sad. I, I, I don't know what to say to him. And I didn't say a word to him. Jerry Garcia right next to me, and I couldn't talk to him. Couldn't even say hello. Nothing. I couldn't say hello. I didn't know what to, I was nervous. So that happens. What are you going to do? The only time I've ever really been starstruck. Because you're a deadhead. That was my life. It still is. I still listen to the dead. I still go to the dead and company shows. I mean, it's 50 years, 50 years ago, 1973 was the first time I saw the dead. Never stopped listening. You know, did a lot of LSD to the Grateful Dead. I bet. I bet. A lot. And, and never look back and say, I'm sorry I did it. <laughs> Tell the experience of what that's like to be a part of that, you know, taking, dropping LSD. And well, I, I always thought that the people who go to a Grateful Dead show are of a, of a certain demeanor. They're calm, they're peaceful, there's no fights. You never see a fight at the Grateful Dead show. Everybody's there for the music and doing their drugs and having a good old time. Right. And the music was such a bonding thing there that it was just, um, it's just a certain element to me that goes to see the Grateful Dead. Very peaceful, which is what I like. Yeah, I can see that. You know, I've never been in a fight in my life. I've never been in a fist fight. I don't like fights. I don't like guns. I'll be the first to tell you I'm so much for gun control. And uh, I don't like boxing. I've never been a, I'm a sports freak, but I really don't like boxing. I never understood the idea of somebody paying to go watch people beat up each other. It's just not my thing. I don't get it. Sure. Sure. Across the pond. To another superstar who was knighted, Sir Elton John. Well, Bobby has, has the direct line this, to call Sir Elton John. Well, this is another one that, um, you know, you get to meet somebody you idolize. Except, so I hired, I when I got, um, Elton was on MCA Records, then he went to Geffen. Then he came back to MCA Records. Ortho loves his weed. I love it. Anyhow, uh, Elton got re-signed to MCA Records. His first single, I Don't Want to Go On With You Like That. Uh, I'm pretty sure I hired Shep Pettibone. How could you not? Shep was amazing. Yep. And we took the record out to the clubs. I got to meet Elton, and he was so thrilled that he had a record being played in the clubs. Um, that, and I don't know if, and again, I don't know if this was MCA records making, paying for me, Elton paying for me, but I went on two trips with him alone. I mean, I went on a trip with him to Chicago to, um, 
I don't know, just a show. I, I don't like I said. I don't know if he sent me, asked for me to come, or MCA had me go as his chaperone. To this day, I have no idea. But we did the show in Chicago in his amphitheater. That was about. It's a good story. We did a show about twenty miles out of Chicago. Now I was look. I was the dance guy. I wasn't a VP of dance. I was just the plain old dance rep there. Anyway, him and I are staying at the uh, Peninsula Hotel in Chicago, and they had a helicopter take him down to the show. So we had to go down to the pier, and him and I were in the car service together. And we get to the pier, and the senior VP of sales for MCA Records, this guy named Harold Solman, is there. And there was room in the helicopter for two people. And this is the senior VP of sales. And I'm just the freaking peon dance guy. And he says to Harold Summon, sorry, Harold, we don't have room for you. <laughs> and he, I was like the low, 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 low man on the totem pole is just the dance rep. And here I was going in a helicopter with, with Elton John. But he actually really took to me. He actually... I'll say it. I know everybody's going to call me this now, but he called me. There was an artist in Britain called Sandy Shaw, S-A-N-D-I-E. She had a bunch of top top pop hits in England, and he decided he was going to call me Sandy. So I was Sandy Shaw to him. Sandy Shaw, everyone. Sandy Shaw, that's what he called me. Uh, he used to call me Sandy. <laughs> but he, did, he actually dedicated a song one night in Madison Square Garden to me. And, you know, Sandy Shaw? Sandy Shaw. No, he didn't call me. He didn't call me Sandy. No, he didn't call me Sandy. But uh, and I went away with him once to uh, West Palm Beach to a resort. And like again, I don't know if he sent me, asked me to come, if MCA sent me. But I went away with him for a couple of days. Him and uh, his manager John Reed. We had a bodyguard, and there were three guys from Boston. He took down. So it was uh, six of us. What do you do when you're in a beautiful resort and not paying for it and being with Elton John? Go figure. So you're having dinner and stuff, and not, you're not really discussing. Well, yeah, we had our meals together, of course. You're not really discussing business. You're just talking about what's happening around at that time, current events and things. You know, people don't realize you're not just, constantly just a, talking just about a regular people. conversation like you and I would have. Yeah, right. So how are you? Are you enjoying? And again, he was another one that I took my family to meet, and he was so gracious. You know, embrace them. Really, Take really nice. Great guy and, a, and a, such a benevolent person and such a donated so much money to his AIDS foundation. It's, he's really a beautiful person. And, of course, the music speaks for itself. Oh, shit, yeah. The music I mean, is phenomenal. Look, uh, I got hired for the last two Elton John records for Interscope. And you know what a rush it was for me to, st to still be working his records to this day? It's it's an honor for me. And, you know, especially I'm doing this so long and for them to hire me for Elton John. And you talk about the Cole oh. Hart record? The Cole Hart record and the other one you did? Um, yes. Britney Spears. So, Cole, Cole Hart. Yeah, so, I, you know, and uh, I'm sure if there's another one coming, I guess... Uh, you got to get that ring. The phone will ring to you. Yes. Yes. I actually, I actually would really love to go see his show one more time in Europe before he retires. So we'll see. 
luckily I kind of have the connection. So Interscope would, you know, be able to get me tickets. They I have to pay for them most probably, but they'll get me good seats. So yeah. we'll see. And Elton's you know, amazing. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. He's amazing. He's still amazing. He's going strong. I mean, it's sad that he's going to retire, but you know, everybody has an end to this. His end is now. Well, Maybe you know, I know, I know somebody who knows him in a roundabout way. And they say his life is touring. Yeah, so how's that go? Watch, he'll retire and unretire. Someone said that to me. We'll see. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, what happens when you want to go back out? What do you do? Make an announcement? Oh, I'm coming back out again with selling tickets again. You never know. And, you know, people would flock to see him again. Look, he's 70-something years old and still sells out tours. God bless Look at Madonna. She's selling out this tour. I mean, I went and uh, I looked to buy tickets and the prices are astronomical. Yeah, they're cra everything's crazy now. It's crazy to try to get into a... What do I think of the Elton John buy-up? I thought it was pretty good. Um, yeah, so Elton was, uh, you know, amongst other things, certainly one of the highlights of my life to meet him and get to know him. I saw his boyfriend a couple of years ago in a restaurant and I, I gave him my card and said, you know, tell him to give me a shout, but I don't know if he ever did or what. How I mean, you didn't give the card, but we thinking that you're trying to pick him up. You want to pick well, him up? I don't think that was ever the intention. So I don't think I ever, I know one thing. He would never have to worry about that. <laughs> Take us to the con, the legendary, iconic Shaka, Shaka Khan. Well, again, Blessed to work these records. Warner Brothers, an amazing label. Um, Ain't Nobody came out. I'll tell you the thing that stands out most in my mind about the Chaka Khan, about the Chaka Khan experience. There was a cut on the album called I Know You, I Live You. Oh. Okay? Yes. Now, when that album came out, and this goes to show you the quantity of albums that I was provided with as opposed to today uh where like you said these 12 inches don't sell i know you i live you when i heard it like oh my god i literally no i'm not going to take credit for it but i sent the album out to the list of billboard reporters and promoted i know you i live you as an album cut nobody else in the company was promoting it if you notice, it was never a domestic 12-inch. I know. I played mine off the album. I Everybody, I promoted it off the album, and it became so big. Because of that. And it's classic. Oh. But it never was a domestic 12-inch. We never promoted it as a 12-inch. We promoted. I promoted it as an album cut. Nowadays, like, who plays album cuts? Who go, well, first of all, it's not available, but um, vinyl, most of them, but we prom I promoted that from an album. Chaco was sweet. Met her a few times. Very, very sweet. Yeah, Patty. LP cut only. Before I get to the current stuff, just want to touch this. You know, one of the biggest, one of our big disco records, of course, um, that was during your RFC era. And I see um, some faces in there we know. <laughs> well, to the far left on next to Gino, Gino Socio was in the middle. Mark Riley. 
To the left of him is Mark, uh, to the right of him is Mark Riley. The pretty woman in front of Gina was Thorne Maxwell. She worked at WBLS. Yep. And the other girl is Mary Thomas, a DJ at WBLS, who went, I believe, to RKS. I think yeah. she's still on the air somewhere. Yeah. She was, um, she was on Kiss at the end, 98.7. Yep. We, um, yeah, it was, that was RFC, one of his first signings. And, uh, you know, Socio danced. I mean, come on. Massive. I don't know what happened to him, though. I mean, his kind of career seemed like it disintegrated. Yeah, it went into... I don't know why. He's up in Canada. He's still yep. alive. That I know. But I, just, I don't know. If you if you do want to... I do have one. I mean, I've told it before, but there is an interesting Larry story with the Prince record, if you want to show that one. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good story. It's a fun story. Um, I took... I don't know if you have that picture available. You don't need. You don't need to show it. Anyway, um, I have when, I, when I was the dance guy at Warner's, uh, Prince had come out with um, a 1999, I think it was. There you go. And um, by the way, that's Jackie Thomas. I said next to me the R&B rep. That's Prince in the middle. Andre Simone, his guitar player. Yep. Uh, Lynn, I forget her last name to Andre, and then next to Prince is Alberta Rhodes, the pro the publicity person for Warners. Anyhow, so um, luckily one day they called me up and Vanity was coming out with Nasty Girls and they said, Prince and Vanity are going to be in New York. They want to go to a club. So, of course, we're going to see Larry LeVan. Well, Larry knew we were coming. And like I said, the Paradise Garage, just like this screen was split, the DJ booth, and then there was a place for the visitors. Introduce Prince and Vanity. And then we go to the other side to watch over the dance floor. We're standing there. First of all, Prince did not say a word to me the entire night. Everything was through his manager, Steve Fognoli. The, all the communication was through Steve Fognoli. Prince didn't say boo to me. Anyway, we're there for about an hour and Larry hadn't played either one of their records. And like, I'm fucking dying. Like, this is so embarrassing to me. And uh, Steve says to me, Prince is ready to go. And like, oh my God, this is so not happening to me. I was so embarrassed. And I went over to Larry and I said, they're ready to go. We're leaving. He goes, you can't leave. And I said, we're leaving. He wants to leave. You can't leave. And then he played like an hour, whatever Prince records were available and Nasty Girls, he wailed every single one. Magic was, turned on, right? I was right? so embarrassed. Like this, I'm taking them to see Larry and he's not playing their records. But he did. I mean, he literally went into the catalog and played whatever was available so Prince could stay and he could show off. Great times. Yeah. And also to have that kind of power. Yeah. Years later, I um, I wanted to get involved with Prince again. I wrote a letter to um, his studio in Minneapolis. And I, I enclosed the picture of him and I together, but I never got a response. It happens. Before but, you know, all that experience at Warner Brothers... Help create a job at MCA Records. So 
So the yes. Warner Brothers days were just totally, totally amazing. And I was a young kid. I was in my you know twenties. I was a kid taking around. Like I said, I look back now; it's a whole different feel than when it was actually going on. Yeah. And of course, you're a smooth operator with Sade too. Yeah, well, that was quite an experience. Uh, Columbia Records was having a listening session for her album. There were maybe two, three hundred people at Lincoln Center. I don't know how I got invited, but I got invited. And uh, hey, here was the opportunity, photo op. But literally, she talked to me for like five, ten minutes and uh, talked music and career and briefly small talk. But hey, meeting Shadea too. Come on. Yeah, that's it's time. I mean, that was amazing. I keep hearing she has music coming out. She has music coming out, but I haven't seen it yet. I'm hearing this for a long time now. Yeah, but Sade, come on to meet Sade. Woo! Gorgeous, too. Gorgeous in person and sweet. Grateful. You know, great voice. Great. You, Let's face you, it, her music speaks for itself again. Sure. When, when house music started out, um, later part of the garage, and then of course, New York, you were at MCA at that time. You discovered a record in the early 90s that you signed with a young group that was just coming up with Teddy Douglas and them called the Basin Boys. True. How did you find that record and what made you sign it? I know it's a great record, of course. It's got the Elmo Mills vocal in it and all that tonight. But you got to give us the background story because that was an interesting signing for a, a major to pick up on and such a different kind of record for its time. Well, I was at, I don't even know if it was called Twilight. I think it was called Sound Factory still back then. Junior Vasquez was playing this record. I ran up to the booth. What the heck is this? He goes, it's a record that's not signed yet. Thursday afternoon, that, that was a Saturday night. Thursday afternoon, the deal was signed. That quickly. We sold so many 12 inches of that record. Like they, for the money that I don't want to disclose how much we paid for it. It was so little. And I wouldn't say it, it put Basement Boys on the map because it was actually quoted as those guys. I don't even recall if it was before Crystal Waters or after. But um, we sold MCA records, must have made a fortune on that because they paid almost nothing for that. And we sold a shitload of 12 inches. Meanwhile, very little that you had to put into it because it was a great record and a big return. Big. Right? Big return. <laughs> and it was such a great record. It was massive. Massive. And uh, I bet yeah. you a lot of people listening to this have no idea what we're talking about. Those guys' record. I'm saying, you need to hear this. If you Tell have never man, I want to make love to him tonight. And over tonight, and over. Tonight. Tonight. <laughs> it, it was, I mean, literally, I ran to that. Well, first of all, getting into Junior's Vasquez booth was not that easy, but luckily they knew me there. So, uh, tell you that I want to make love to you tonight. Oof, girlfriend, work it. 
such a great I gotta record. give Tony Humphreys credit too because he worked that record on Kiss Master Mix. Everybody yeah. worked it. That was a record everybody had on tape because Teddy got that, played that record. I mean, if you didn't, yeah, Teddy got that tape around and that thing Junior was playing it. And another another big thing, you know, here we go. Now you experience Garage, everybody. Now you, let's talk about how you're right there again. Sound Factory's budding. You're right there in that whole mecca, listening to music, promotions guy, and playing A and R man now because you actually became more of an A and R guy. If you, if you well, I wanted to be an A and R guy, but they never classified me as an A and R guy. But well, I, did, I did get to choose a lot of the remixes for MCA, but they never made me an A. They always, I mean, there was an A and R job open. I'll tell you something. So there was an A&R job open, and I wanted it so badly. And they gave it to somebody else, and I was fucking livid. And they thought they were going to make me happy. They gave me a $20,000 raise to keep me happy, and that did not make me happy. I wanted that A&R job. They wanted me, and you're too valuable in promotion. That's what they told me. So they gave me, they put $20,000 into my paycheck. I could give a flying about that. I want wow. that money. Money ain't going to help. You can't, buy, you can't buy me. So who's the A&R job that you would have gotten? I'd rather that? not say. Oh, so I'll, tell, I'll tell it because you know something? He's a very, very good person. And, and he did not okay. know. He did not know this whole situation. And I work with him a lot now. And he's a great, great, great guy. Carmen Cacciatore. Oh, he's a dog, Carmen. And he's a great guy, and I held nothing against him. It wasn't his fault. Like was I that, said, they, like I said, a, they wanted that, to keep me in promotion. That was it. But was this pre to his RCA job? Or yes. This was, this was, he, he quit RCA to come work at MCA. Right. Okay. So no, I hold nothing against Carmen. He's a wonderful human being. Oh yes, wonderful. I, I talked to him constantly on the phone. It Carmen's was not his there. fault, but I wanted that job so badly. But you know, things happen for a reason. But twenty thousand dollars—that didn't make me happy. I, I was look. I was happy making four hundred dollars more a week. Let's face it. Who wouldn't be? But mentally, I wasn't happy. When you went out on your own as an independent promoter, was there a fear that you couldn't do what you were normally used to doing or having that expense account and having that cushion? Or I've, never able- had, I've never had a fear about anything in the record business. Some didn't make it, Bobby. You know, that came, you know, they got let go. You know that. Well, I, I mean, I got let go for political reasons. Um, they asked me, I could have stayed there. They asked me to switch to hip hop. And I literally, there was a girl named Nancy Levin, may she rest in peace. But uh, I literally said to her, I don't want to talk about hoes. I, I will tell you exactly what I said. I don't want to talk about hoes. I don't want to talk about violence. I don't want to talk about sex. I don't want to talk about drugs. And I guarantee you that Funk Master Flex does not want to talk to me. I said, I can't fake it. If I ain't feeling the music, I can't fake it. Yes. If it's and they told me to take a walk. I had seven months to go on a contract. I was a VP of promotion. I was getting paid $2,500 a week. 5000 the paycheck. 
I had a choice. I got let go on, on April 24th, April 23rd, 1998. My contract was over November 30th. I had a choice of taking less money on the dollar or getting paid getting paid a normal salary till November 30th, but I it was a no-compete, and um, I, I couldn't do anything working against that would compete with MCA Records, so I couldn't promote records. And um, I took the, uh, the seven months off and partied. I took a house on Fire Island for the summer and had a blast. I didn't know what the heck I was going to do, but... You can't, that's right, and that's... I want people to understand that. Like, what do you, you get five thousand dollars thrown into your bank account every two weeks of doing nothing? Like, damn, this is kind of like the life. <laughs> Living on the beach and getting five thousand dollars thrown into my account? Hey, come on, who wouldn't like that? No, of course. For the next seven months, is a seven package. Imagine if they did that now. They don't even they don't even do that anymore. You're out the door. It's done. Goodbye. So, and, so I didn't I didn't really know what I was going to do. Uh, I will say I was pretty highly respected and people said, you lose a job, your phone's going to be ringing off the hook. Let me tell you something. It did yeah. not ring off the hook. Tell and everybody that. Nobody was calling. Maybe Hashkarili may be calling me, but most people didn't know who the fuck I was anymore. It was like, you're as good as your last record. And I was in my 40s and you know, people were saying, you know, when I, I went to see a lawyer to try to get out of my contract at MCA, I was miserable there. And someone said, for a guy in dance music, for a guy who's a VP, you don't make enough money. For a guy who's in dance music, you make a lot of money. So anyhow, nobody was offering me a job. No, I'm telling you, nobody. And I didn't know what to do with myself, but for some reason, back then, I just don't even think it bothered me. Anyhow, I'm in a record store, Decadence Record. This is how it started. I mean, we, I'm, I'm just going to give you a little how it all started here. So I was in a record store, Decadence Records on 23rd Street. And there was a record being played. And this is near the end of my free money, quote, free money. There was a record being played. And I said to Dennis, the owner, like, damn, what's this record? I need it. I was DJing on Saturday nights at a bar called G in New York at the same time. Uh, I need this record. And he said, there's the producer, Keith Lippman. Oh, okay. And like, whoa, this record is, is fierce. He goes, it's coming out on Nervous Records in January. Do you know Mike Weiss? And of course, I knew Mike Weiss. So, yeah, he goes, why don't you call him? He has nobody to promote the record. Now, here I was. I wanted to be an A&R guy. And like, the last thing I wanted to do was promote so records. I wanted an A&R job. But I called Mike, and uh, I went up to meet him, and uh, he said, why don't you come and work this record for us? Okay. So uh, I started working Skin. The record was Charlotte Skin. And um, I started, oh, my God, Chris the Greek is in here. Holy shit. 242, you know, 242, 0725, right? 
<laughs> Anyhow, Look who's here, Jelly Bean. Can you believe it? Welcome, Welcome Jelly in, Bean. JB. John Benitez. So anyhow, so um, I went off to work this record and, and nervous. And then, and the, and the guy who's still in the business, Johnny DeMiro, Johnny D, calls me up. I don't think Johnny D had any love for me whatsoever. But he called me up and he said, I, I hear you're working a record for Nervous Records. Would you want to work a record for Atlantic? Okay. What's the record? It was Tori Amos, Jackie Strength. Then next thing I know, Dave German at Columbia Records is calling me. I got a Mariah Carey record. How would you like to work it for us? And I had to leave nervous. I couldn't work there anymore, and I never looked back. That's where we are today. And you wanted the A&R job. But actually, you do I love the A&R job, except now, I'm telling you something. I can't go on TikTok and say, oh, my God, I'm going to do my A&R via TikTok. It's, to me, it's always the ears. I could care less what TikTok is doing. It's about the ears. But now it's like, is it on TikTok? I got discovered on TikTok. It's like, yes, it's another avenue. No doubt about it. Not my avenue. So how do you... Okay, good. I'm glad you brought this up. Algorithms and all the current stuff that people use to judge the quality of a record or quality of an artist. How do you how do you um, circumnavigate around that, being where you come from? Well, being an independent promoter, I'm handed... You know, I'm given records to promote. So if something... Let's say uh, Lenny Fontana was uh, signing Joe Blow, my next-door neighbor, and they did a 30-second video, and it's huge on TikTok. If that's what I'm handed, if I like the music, I'm going to work it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say to the label, you know, screw you. I don't care about TikTok. If it has 20 million plays on TikTok and the record's good, bring it on. But that's the problem. Sometimes you see the number, the algorithm is spiking, but the record stinks. How do you, you know, how do you just say, is it just what we call it pay for play? Do we just accept the check to do the promotion? I only go by one thing. My ears. There you go, everyone. That's it. Quality is in. If I don't like it, I don't care if it has 50 million, 20 million Spotify plays. If I don't like it and it's offered to me, sorry, no dice. Bobby, how important was that? If there was zero money in my pocketbook, I would still say no. Gotcha. How important was that Billboard dance chart when you when you worked it for all those years, the 20 years? 20 years? No, try Mom. like uh, more than that, but um, 40 I'm years. About independ- no, I'm talking about independently. Uh, independently. What, now, what's the question again? How important was that chart to what you, as a promoter? Uh, to me, it was my bread and butter. I put a lot of money in my pocket and uh, got to meet a lot of great people. Uh I'm not going to, again, I'm second time going to say this, but I kind of toot my horn. I would go out and see 
all these DJs around the country. Uh, there was no one I wouldn't go see to help a relationship. And let's face it, the Billboard dance chart, for those who don't know, was the one chart in the magazine where it was not electronically, electronically monitored. So relationships really helped in helping to get a record moved up that chart. And I mean, I went to see this guy in Iowa. I went to the Iowa State Fair to see all these unhealthy people eating this butter and all this garbage. But I went to that Iowa State Fair with the DJ. I, and let me, it was a cultural thing for me to see this. Like, oh my God, like these people are so unhealthy. How can they live like this? But exactly. that's Iowa for you. You ever been to the Iowa State Fair, Lenny? No, I've never it's, been. It's an eye opener, I'll tell you. <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it really is for us. See, that's what I mean. Because of this work, which is glamorous at times, has also its dark side. But know? I'll tell you something. To this day, like, now I'll go see my Twitch DJs. That's what I was going to ask you now. changed. Well, what has changed well, for you? A little bit changed. But <laughs> so so are, you, are you still using the same principles as you did with your billboard way of working with twitch now absolutely not look the first thing is just being honest you got to be honest if you know about your music and you got to know what djs play a certain genre that is the same but with billboard like i said it was a chart that kind of could be hyped and there was some DJ. i mean i'm tell it like it is there were some djs on the panel who used to say to me look I wish I could play this record. It just doesn't fit my format, but I love it, and I'm going to help you out. It is what it was. Whereas Twitch, you know, I mean, either you're playing it or you ain't playing it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's one of the reasons I don't like Spotify is because I see advertisements will get you 10,000 Spotify plays. Yes, it's a big deal with the record industry, but some of it has to be fake. 100%. Most of the time, the buys are fake. I'm not into this fake crap. Frockery, right? So speaking of fake to the truth, I'm going to bring this up about the Grammy panel and the whole dance category that we've just experienced for the first time seeing televised. Because it's been acknowledged because Frankie got the remix of the year, David Morales back from the time in 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 Grammy um, life. But now we're at the point where they brought up Purple Disco Machine for non-classical remix, and Rihanna wins for a dance album. Beyonce, not Rihanna. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Thank you. Beyonce. Sorry. Rihanna's fresh in my mind because of the Super Bowl halftime show. But um, I kind of have my own thought about Beyonce, uh, Beyonce's win. Not to say it's not something that should have happened. We never looked at her as a so-called dance artist. And she's more, we call her a pop artist, technically. I'm going to get shot for this. So you and I spoke about this, and I, I wanted to get your opinion for all the years you've been doing this. How did you feel about that being viewed in the wind for her? Um, 
Did I play anything off the album on my Twitch stream? No. Let's start like that. Did you play anything the, off album the album? Was okay. I'm you know, Beyonce is someone who's contributed so much to the music scene. Sometimes things are given maybe in honor of a career as opposed to a specific piece of music. You can't take away what Beyonce has contributed to the music industry. Now, the only gripe I have about this whole thing is that the award has never been shown on TV before. True, it was her record-breaking thing. But from what I, I always understood was nobody knew who the winners were before the envelope was opened. Was it a coincidence that it was Beyonce's record-breaking award and it was shown? I don't know. You tell me. That's the only thing I have. But for maybe she should have been given it for an amazing, amazing career that she she has given so much to the music industry. Let's give her her props. Okay? And I'll leave it at that and read that's between fair. the lines. No, that's fair. No, that's fair. I mean, sometimes we have that, you know, because until Frankie was honored for the first remix, God, there was so many remixes that could have, should have won pre to Frankie gain that first Grammy. Right. But I, uh, I kind of looked at it with Frankie Knuckles. I'm going to show Frankie's picture because we all love Frankie Knuckles. Of course, Bobby and Frankie together at WMC in nineties. What was it? 97. That's what it looks like underneath. Yeah, it looks like 97. Top, yeah. Frankie got that award. Right. And I kind of thought, yeah, that was a cool remix, but there were so many other great remixes. So like you said, it was more of the token, I think, it was due to him. Same with Morales. Christ, how many remixes were huge that David worked on? That he and, and I will say one thing. She certainly invested in hiring a lot of people from the industry on her record. 100%. From the dance music industry. I'll give her her props and leave it at that. No, she did. She collect, Look, they got the right people. The people who are doing stuff now. And, and good for her. Like, yeah. No, she stepped let's out of the box. Let's see what the next record sounds like. <laughs> well, you always, well, they always say, you're as good as your last record, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe she'll get wise and hire Lenny Fontana. I'd love to work with them. You know? Well, you never know. You never, you never know. know. You never know where life's going to take you because, you know, we were talking about this, how the 1990s is making its resurgence again over in the UK. And my life was part of that 90s landscape of house music. So Lord knows what happens. You never know which superstar comes to you and says, hey, I want a track from you. I like your track. Hey, it's it happens. You know, there's, a, there's an expression, uh, something I learned early in life. You never know who's going to be someplace tomorrow. That's right. You know, I, I, another expression uh, that be nice to everybody because oh. being nice can never hurt, but being rude can really hurt sometimes. Oh, it's the same people on the way up. Mm -hmm. The same people exactly. on the way down, baby. Ain't it the fucking truth? Oh, my God. Jackie Gleason. Don't blame me. When I lost my job at MCA Records, I learned who my friends were. <laughs> oh, well, you you learn real fast. Like you I said, learned real fast. Was Bobby's phone ringing? Yeah, the bitches that knew he had coins in his pocket want to go out dancing and drink with him and eat. <laughs> That's different. We're talking about who are the ones saying, "Bobby, I got a job for you." That didn't come around. No, 
but it, it worked out okay. No, you did. Let me tell you something. Still am. Still, I'm still you're loving it. Done. You're not I'm loving retire. what I'm doing now. Are you ever going to retire from this? Are you ever going to pack well, it I, in? I don't want to be old. I mean, I want to keep young. Being in the music business kind of keeps you young in some respects. So what I mean, you- I certainly can't stop the age. You know, we all can't stop the numerical age from growing and, you know, keep expanding. But uh, a lot of it's mental. And uh, I love music. So to be blessed to be in the music business for all these years. And I hate the business, but I love the music. Bobby and Spen. Jocelyn Brown. I mean, he's been around. I'll tell you a good Jocelyn story. Yeah, That was a good one. So I wanted to sign, I believe it was somebody else's guy to Warner's. And they turned me down. Jocelyn's been friends with Jocelyn for many years. But they turned me down. They they didn't like it. Too bad, right? Yeah. It was either that or I'm caught up. One of those two. One of those two records I had I had in my, in my pocket to be signed, and they didn't want to let me sign it. The, the company. Yeah. Well, it, I'm caught up. Went to Marvin Schlachter. And somebody else's guy went to um, right some now. label or a blue label. Yeah, blue label. It's exactly what I was thinking. I can't think of the label. It's an independent. Yes. And of course, you know, look how you transcended. You're around Crystal, Anaya, Barbara Tucker. I mean, it's not like I mean, you're not. Barbara, Barbara really, like, she, she did something for me that blew me away. She did her 25th anniversary in the music business party. And she actually had me be her opening DJ at Webster Hall. I was like, Tucker, you want me? And he said, and she said to me, I couldn't think of anybody else I'd want to play first. Funny story. So had a big dance floor going. Tony Humphreys followed me. Now he was supposed to start. I think I was playing to like 11, 1130. Tony Humphreys comes into the booth. And the dance floor was packed and moving. Hey, can I take over now? And it wasn't my end time. And I looked at him and I said, you know something? This is Tony Humphreys. Bow down. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's Tony, baby. Tony Humphreys wants to take my spot. Go right ahead, buddy. Go ahead, Tony. Do your thing. But we were at, um, we were at, um, Quantizer's party and Barbara was doing a radio interview and, uh, we were all in one room together. And she actually mentioned on the show, that she hired, that she had me for a DJ. I was blown away. Like, Barbara's I, good like that. She's really I was good. Blown like away. That. I was really touched. Before I let you go, you we, must, we must, we must, I love this woman, Lady Mama Lot, and all her songs with, with Lord help us, Kyla Bell. Lord help us. Boy. Oh, what a voice. Say my name, Patty Patty. That was taken at Private Eyes, a club on 20th Street. The old Sound uh, 21st Factory. Street. That's right. Which became Sound Factory Bar. I uh, was blessed to work with Patty. The, 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 the one, I guess, highlight for me with Patty was that um, we did a song called The Shoe Is On The Other Foot. Tony Moran was um, hired. I hired Tony Moran to mix the record. And she re-sang the vocals and literally... I was in the studio with her and Tony all day, just the three of us. And to like sit there and watch Patty LaBelle do take after take after take. And like, I'm sitting here like, Oh my God. Yeah. Right. You can't, you're like, Patty LaBelle is in front of me. Holy shit. I never met Candy Staten. No, 
But yeah, Patty LaBelle, like, oh my God, I'm sitting here and I'm watching Patty LaBelle do takes and like, oh my Lord, have mercy. This is crazy. Patty, Patty. I'm going to see her March 12th. She's playing in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, Al Downing is actually op Don Down Al Downing is opening for her. Really? Playing the King's Theater in uh, in Brooklyn, March 12th. I bought tickets so freaking fast for that. Patty, Patty. Love Patty LaBelle. Patty LaBelle. Patty LaVan, I was going to say. Don't ask me. Minnie LaVan. Patty, Patty LaVan. <laughs> yeah. Patty, uh, Patty. You know, it was funny when I did um, I did that uh, remake of uh, from uh, Two One Food of uh, Lady Marmalade, and there were DJs who didn't know the original when I was promoting it. It was really crazy. I know it is crazy. Team. It is. I went to um, I was at um, Five Napkins Burgers, and there was this girl there with huge earrings on, and she was a beautiful girl. And I said to my God, you because Jody Watley used to wear that. I said, You remind me so much of Jody Watley. She looks at me, she goes, Who's Jody Watley? <laughs> like, okay, you know, maybe I'm getting old. I don't know. I know it's so crazy. Crazy. You're not getting old. It's just that because you're still out there, you're still cutting edge. What are you talking about? If you know, getting old is. I love music, so to, yeah. Like, so you'll never age. You'll never to be, age. Blessed, to be blessed to be still doing this, and I never Bobby, saw. The last, Bobby, the last question, and I think I asked you this Sunday, but I'm going to ask say it so that people can hear you ask to hear the answer. Any regrets to anything you would have done differently in the whole career? There was one instance I had, and I, I don't know if it had, it really didn't have any effect with my job, but I did something stupid that um, I was called up to Epic Records. They wanted me to hear, I don't think it was offering me a job. They just, somebody had told them that I was, I don't know. I got called up with an independent promoter. They wanted me to hear what I, what I thought this record could do for the clubs. I listened to it and I said, nah, this won't be a big club record because it wasn't in the vein of a club record. It was Luther Vandross, never too much. <laughs> um, you can follow me on, on Twitch. That's the most important one. Bobby promo, by the way, uh, I'm seeing someone's asking. Lenny has those things running underneath. There you go. Pick them up. I'm going to say to, to Bobby Shaw, thank you so much for a wonderful two hours. Oh, it was I great. Hope, I, hope we covered, me. I hope we covered ev as much as we could cover. It's uh, you know, we're always good for round two. There's plenty more to talk about. Bobby can tell you many, many things. But here's the thing that I, I love about Bobby Shaw. It's called being real. And he kept it very real. Look, honesty will get you everywhere. Real is the way I see it. You know, is this real, the real deal as it is? Like he says, I know that person. He knows it. If you ask him, hey, you know such a, nope, never work with them. No, I know who they are, of course. So, Bobby, can someone send their record that's not necessarily known to you? Are you open to hearing new product? Hey, I'm, 
I'm always look, like I like I said to you before. You never know who the next person you're going to meet, what they can be. Uh, Bobby at Bobby Show Promotions. Anytime, I love listening to music. I'm honest; I might hurt your feelings if I don't like it, but I just tell it to you like it is. That's the problem. Get ready for the truth. You have to be able to accept it. You, you know, know it, it is what it is. It's it's hard to sell, tell somebody. To, everybody thinks they have a number one record. They don't. It's hard. Look, I've turned down some major artists uh, that I didn't like their records. Well, it is what it is. Trust me, there's been money thrown in front of me that, you know, uh, I wish, but I can't. Thank you, Mark. Really, did you see what Matt Hosh and I have had this talk about John Duff? I said, John Duff, that record belonged on the radio. That was such a great record. Hosh and I keep going back and forth about that. Is it a sin record? And then Matt, Matt, well, Matt I did not tell you you had to do that. Do that. But like that record, Is It a Sin by John Duff? Should have been major, major rate. Still, you know something? Still can be. Such a great record. But you know, money can't buy me. You could throw thousands of I don't like it. I don't like it. That's life. Yeah, because you, everyone understands this. He's got to believe in what he's saying. If he doesn't believe in it, how do you sell it? Well, the thing, is, the thing is, nobody will trust me if I do things that I don't believe in. It's, it's trust. It's all about trust. You know, you, you want people to listen to your music. It's true. And I'll say one other thing since we're on this. If you are a Twitch DJ, I love feedback. <laughs> yes, Bobby needs feedback from Twitch people. That, that's Come the on. biggest issue I have with Twitch. I can't watch 700 something DJs that I service, but I ask for feedback, and very few people on Twitch give me feedback. It's the one gripe I have. If you're on Twitch and you get music from me, please try to email me if you're playing any of the tracks. That, that's Timothy, you, uh, you know you're in a different class. Seeps, you know you're in a different class. But, uh, and if you're on here, you know, I, I love doing this Twitch promotion and uh, everybody's opened their doors to me. So thank you. And Bobby, we wish you all the success with your newfound career alongside your other career, of course, that you've, that you've done so well. We hope that you become a major partner on Twitch and take that show to the, to the stratosphere. We'll you know, see. Thank you for watching. And everyone on True House Stories, thank you for tuning in. You know where you can catch us, and we'll make an announcement who's coming up next. But for now, have a great night. Thank you, Lenny. Good to knock. And thanks again. Stay, stay real. Bye -bye. Thank you, everybody. Love and kisses.